Hi, welcome to the Trail Stewards Radio Hour. This is Chad Swimmer, and I'm here with my friend Paul Schulman. How are you doing, Paul? I'm doing good. How about yourself? I'm doing great. We have a really interesting show tonight. We have lined up first Polly Gervin, the legal counsel for the Coyote Valley Band of Pomo. She is going to talk to us about some amazing developments in their dealings with the state of California in respect to the management of Jackson, the People's Forest. After that, because we are all in this together, we are going to leave Mendocino County for a few minutes and go north to hear from an activist known as Britches. They are one of a group of forest defenders fighting PG&E's overreach in so-called Humboldt County. After that, we will hear from Michelle McMillan of the Mama Tree Network and youth activist Sarah Rose, who will give us an update on some pretty unsettling developments in the Red Tail Timber Harvest Plan, five and a half miles east of Fort Bragg on Highway 20. Then we will hear from Vince Taylor, economist, environmentalist, activist, and the founder of the original campaign to restore Jackson. Vince will tell us about the history of the iconic Mendocino woodlands on Big River. Then he will also detail how California actually should be paying for carbon credits for cutting down large Douglas fir at a loss in Jackson Demonstration State Forest. That is the Trail Stewards Radio Hour. We'll have all that for you after listening to a little more of this song by the Brothers Comatose, 120 East. but I follow you Tonight we're moving on Let's go to Polly Gervin. She is a longtime forest defender, an expert in Indian law, and the legal counsel for the Coyote Valley Band of Pomo. She is joining us through a not great Zoom connection, so our apologies for the sound quality from the Coyote Valley Rancheria. Polly, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me on. Can you tell us about this unexpected development? Well, somewhat in a state of shock and also in a celebratory mood that the tri the state has proffered co-management of Jackson Demonstration State Forest to the local Northern Pomo Koshuki tribes. So it's a big undertaking, but I want you and the rest of the environmental community to know uh, there's some misapprehension that we're only concentrating on archeological sites. But from day one, back in um, February, March, April, we were reaching out to the state under an executive order of the state that compels heads of agencies and departments to consult state government to tribal government on issues resolving, uh, involving the, uh, their cultural resources, their biological resources, and in, in their ancestral territory. And we benefited greatly, greatly by Governor Newsom's advocacy on behalf of the tribes of California. He um, established a Truth and Healing Council to deal with the historic uh, depravities and legally supported depravities in California history towards the native tribes of California. It is uh, like a reparation time so and a moral reckoning. So um, it, pursuant to that creation of a council of regionally um, elected native leaders, unrecognized and federally recognized th from th throughout the state, 
and advocates from the Southlands, the Kumaye Confederacy, people with large, large casinos with huge cultural resource departments, uh, have been strongly advocating for us in the North. That's great. And um, what we basically affected is on state lands, which are in the ancestral territory of the tribes, the, tri- the state has to proffer co-management to those tribes as a historical reparation. And in our minds, co-management is a compromise. Uh, we, of course, would prefer the land back. But we're fully ready and able. We're going to the table with a very good team, which we, we may have to augment. Um, but at this time, we feel fully capable of entering into government-to-government consultation, uh, co-management discussions. When we reached out, we articulated that our concerns were not just archaeological, but biological, that we are concerned with the critters, the waters, the trees. We are concerned with carbon sequestration. We were concerned with climate change and fire safety, as well as the application of the Mazapur throughout the land holdings of JDSF, which kills and poison the oak trees. So from day one, we had a broad agenda agreed to by the California Natural Resources Agency. We had a very good working relationship with Helga Eng before he departed to uh, Alaska. We as well have developed a very good rapport with Geneva Thompson, who we are delighted is the assistant to Crowfoot, second in command at the California Natural Resources Agency. And she is a Native American woman attorney who previously worked for the Yurok tribe. So basically the tribe is really in the driver's seat right now of the environmental activism for JDSF. Um, And that, that we could not have gotten to this point without the support of the valiant coastal community going out into the woods, two in the morning, four in the morning, placing themselves in front of de- logging operations, active logging operations, doing it with civility and with nonviolence. Mm-hmm. And um, the tribe is very grateful for that pressure because I think it took the trail stewards and we commend you, Chad, for initiating this movement. We all have to be so thankful to you and the trail stewards for opening the door for the tribe to step in too. We do have um, uh, the offer of assistance of legal counsel from the California Indian Legal Services Corporation. Um, They do feel that my analysis I proffered early on in the negotiations with the state was that the timber harvest plans are not the functional equivalent of CEQA because CEQA, at least in forest tribes and their resources are concerned. Because CEQA was, was recently amended to really expand the role of tribes in protecting their resources through conservation easements, through ownership, relinquishment by the state, through co-management with the state. It is the era of tribal sovereign power vis-a-vis the state government. And Michael Hunter, my God, what a exemplar of youth, of youthful, vigorous, and highly intelligent tribal leadership. He garnered the support of all the tribes of California, South, Central, North. This is historic. We yes. have never had all the tribes of California unified in an environmental resistance cause. So we're delighted um, by, we feel that the wind is at our back. Um, and not only Dig this, not only co-management, 
the head of California of Cal Fire recently stated in public hearings that we the tribes get to re-enter amending the management plan because of directives from the state, because of the clear policy directives to support tribes' resources, managing their own ancestral resources and to support the sovereignty of the tribes. So, you know, a lot of um, the environmental movement we're working with has not been afforded that opportunity because there's a certain procedural time frame that they say they can extend to before they have to amend. But we've been given the state saying they're sort of saying we can't do it right now with the citizenry, but we'll do it with the tribes. So we actually also have the right to amend the management plan. And we fully intend to bring all the issues that are on our agenda with the state, including carbon sequestration, including the critters the, and, the fit, and the waters, including the plants. We have this all mapped out. And the benefit, it's the timeliness of the goddess. The 10 local tribes who manage <clears throat> a 4,500-acre, now it's that, um, tribal intertribal park on the Lost Coast, mm-hmm. they just completed a habitat management plan with Save the Redwoods. Yes. Fully funded with experts of all sorts due to a PG&E settlement that, which benefited Save the Redwoods. And we're the only environmental forest preservers on the Northern California area area that have a wilderness easement that have are not allowing for commercial logging, though the state pressured us greatly to do 30 year rotations. We said, no, we're going to manage the forest to heal the forest and to let, and and we will not timber harvest um, but at that time back then the timber industry was very strong very strong so they were able to pressure the state to demand that if we got ownership we'd still have to cut the trees but now really the timber industry has waned and the jobs are, are minuscule compared to the tourist industry. So we really are in a new era. And I want the, um, the general public to know, and particularly everybody that got up every morning at two and went to the tree, those gates. Mm-hmm. We are with you. We will not be just dealing with what they call tribal concerns or environmental concerns. They're not. And so and already the state has agreed to a very expansive agenda. That's great. Um, which includes funding for our efforts as well. And we're doing this to heal for the future generations, both both sides of the equation, I would say, the settler culture and the native culture. The, the, the state government has offered this co-management, but at the same time, they're continuing to push logging, that there's still like there's logging going on right now in the middle of winter in, in Redtail, which is um, has been really quite an issue and i'm wondering have they what do they tell you about this well unfortunately both lawyers from the indian side and the uh epic environmental protection information Center have studied it and feel that those thps that were not publicly commented on or or in which the um tribe did not intervene itself that they we don't have a very really strong leg to stand on yeah. But where we have strong, strong legs to stand on our future, un, uh, un, unfi- unapproved. Well, thank you, Polly. And we will have you on again next month, hopefully with more good developments. 
Keep up the keep up the all good fight, all of you guys. That's Polly Gervin, legal counsel for the Coyote Valley Band of Pomo and longtime expert in Indian law. You are listening to the Trail Stewards Radio Hour with information and perspectives on Jackson Demonstration State Forest and beyond. And this is KZUI X and Z, 88.1, 90.7, 91.5, and streamable live. That was our friend from just north of the border, the Oregon border that is, Alice DiMaselli, made out of water. It is getting close to the end of the year, and we want to thank everyone who has supported KZYX in 2021. If you haven't yet joined or renewed your membership, you can make your gift to KZYX by visiting our website, kzyx.org. Use the donate button or mail a check to P.O. Box 1, Philo, California, 95466. All donations are tax deductible and will go a long way in keeping KZYX and Z a strong community resource into the new year. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And coming up this Christmas Eve, tune in Friday at 7 p.m. for Pride Radio Mendocino with Corporal Sin and Terry. An hour of news and music from Mendocino County's LGBTQIA community. That's Pride Radio Mendocino, alternating Fridays at 7 p.m. here on KZYXNZ. Now we are going to get a short update from what's happening in so-called Humboldt County from the Tree Sitters Union Local 707. Here you go. Hey, this is Granzel. And this is Heddle. Um, We're out here on Cinquion and Matol ancestral lands, um, also known as the Humboldt Redwoods State Park, where PG&E is threatening to cut massive old growth trees along power lines, Um, that cross through the state park. They are doing this under a project called EVM, uh, which stands for Enhanced Vegetation Management, that PG&E has basically invented in response to mounting lawsuits to prevent what they call wildfires. But these aren't wildfires. Uh, These are man-made fires caused by power lines that are maintained at the lowest cost possible and don't account for the cost to the climate, the environment, people, animals, habitat, etc. Basically, this project is a way for them to like cover their behinds and um, avoid acknowledging that these power lines are a continuation of a cycle of um, the destruction of our collective home. Um, not to mention that this project, despite being on so-called, so-called public lands, um, hasn't actually released or um, any environmental impact review or statement to the public. But us being here and um, stopping work has actually caused them to start that review. We're out here today and there was an earthquake. Um, We were standing by a bunch of old growth trees and they just kind of like gently rocked. And that was probably, that, that was a higher magnitude I've experienced than I've experienced in my whole life. And that felt a lot safer than being in the top story of a home. Literally felt grounded by old growth trees through that earth cake. <laughs> um, from what we can tell, a lot of the um, like surveyor types out here and supervisors are like going off of outdated information that they got in college like 20 years ago. Um, we 
have talked to a lot of people who do, I don't know, who are like more updated with that kind of information and who also have experience um, in the arborist industry. And there's general agreement that like the safety practices, the environmental practices are not what's up. <laughs> so basically the way that we are encouraging uh, these surveyors and supervisor types to do some sort of environmental review um, is we're just demanding that they halt the project altogether and we do that by um, interrupting the work um, by exercising our right to be concerned park visitors on public lands on so-called public lands we're just you know your average park enjoyers visitor demanding the halt of hegemonic electric superpower poison um, the people who are, like, making up these plans are acting like they care about the interest of people. They don't care about our survival, our safety, our health. They care about feeding their wallets and continuing to feed their wallets. They're, they don't care about the workers. It's the same story, you know? Like, we're all familiar with this tale. And it's not what's up at all. What's what's up is old growth trees... Not power lines, old growth trees that have outlived all of us that are here today, that will outlive all of us that are here today, that aren't going to fall because of a fire induced by a power line, um, and will be standing far after those power lines get ripped down. We're all a part of this planet. We're all a part of nature. It's, you know, nothing is nothing is a vacuum this is an entire loop and we're all connected and relying on people who try to disconnect us from our home is not going to help us that's what's destroying our lives if we want you know to live out however long we still have <laughs> in maybe the best ways possible uh, continuing to appreciate old growth, continuing to appreciate just the world that we live in. We can't, we can't, you know, we can't let them do this stuff. <laughs> we can't let them do it anymore. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And this is another, um, important part. Um, if you want to get involved, um, you can reach out to our Instagram or email. Uh, the Instagram is treesittersunion.local707. Um, and you can also reach us by email at forestaction at riseup.net. That was Granzel and Heddle coming to us from so-called Humboldt County, sent to us via the magic of, unfortunately, the internet and PG&E. I guess when you live in the belly of the beast, you must use the beast to fight the beast. And here is a short bit of a song by an artist recommended to us by the Tree Sitters Union Local 707, Hannah Marie. Okay. That was Hannah Marie. 
And you are listening to the Trail Stewards Radio Hour on KZYX. We are going to go to an interview with Michelle McMillan and Sarah Constance Rose about what's going on in the forest right now here in Jackson. So, Michelle, can you give us an update on the winter logging operations that have been going on? Yeah, absolutely. So, as listeners may be aware, there are limited operations that are permitted in Jackson Demonstration State Forest during the winter. The LTOs are allowed to fall trees. Uh, The limitations are on where they can remove the trees. So on Wednesday, December 8th, which is almost two weeks ago now, there was active logging confirmed in Redtail Timber Harvest Plan. Redtail is... uh, on the Fort Bragg end of Highway 20. And one of the areas in which logging was taking place is right at the entrance to Camp 1, which is one of the most beloved camping spots in all of Jackson Demonstration State Forest. So, of course, as soon as logging was noticed, forest defenders did what they do best and went to nonviolently be present in the forest in hopes of continuing that people's moratorium. Redtail is over-harvesting even by their own management standards. And so... We feel really strongly as a community that this plan should not be allowed to continue before management can be reevaluated. Wait, what do you mean by over-harvesting? There's a limit in the management plan on how much of the vegetation they can remove, and they are exceeding that according to the standards of that area. Mm -hmm. Starting on the 8th for a solid week and a half, um, unfortunately, logging continued even over that weekend, and... One of the incidents that we saw, uh, forest defenders are calling a spike cut, and that was the felling of a number of really large, beautiful trees um, that were part of clumps of redwoods there, and they removed the largest trees and felled them right across the gate at that Camp One entrance in a place where they were highly visible, not just to the activists, but also to community members passing by. The loggers themselves spray-painted in bright orange spray paint, good morning, on one of the trees one of the largest trees that they felled and that they felled that early Sunday morning. And that tree is one I've parked next to for years and always loved and was not at all happy when I saw a blue stripe painted on it. It was a really devastating loss. And I think it, though it really galvanized the community. Um, I was actually out there on Sunday witnessing uh, the after effects of that harvest when a local family, um, young parents and their young child pulled in And they were obviously confused. They weren't expecting people there. And I asked them, you know, why they had stopped and they had come to hike the in Camp One, um, as they do several times a week, they said. They had no idea logging was occurring, let alone right there by the gate, let alone those trees. And watching those parents try to explain to their child what had happened and why um, was a really, you know, powerful and upsetting experience. Mm Mm-hmm. What's going on right now? Is it is there still logging? So there's been mixed reports of activity. Um, the logs are still that were felled at that Camp One entrance are still there. Cutting could be continuing, which is unfortunate. All the soil is so saturated with moisture. So even if they're not removing logs and doing heavy machinery work, even just the business of driving, like you know, for example, a Tacoma, which is a pretty common truck out there is causing damage to the roads that aren't um, graveled. We're seeing like really significant ruts in the mud, uh, potholes starting to form, damage on the sides of the road. Um, so there's, there's 
no real way to log in the winter without doing significantly more damage. And as we know, the damage is significant enough. Mm-hmm. This is in the west, the west segment of the Red Tail THP, and this goes right almost to the Noyo River. In this spot, there's a number, there's a line of campgrounds going up to Camp One, and South Bend and Red Tail campgrounds are just gorgeous, scenic. South Bend has an almost 10-foot diameter redwood right in the middle of it. And then if you go up the river from there, there are numerous gigantic second-growth trees, and one is a ship's prow clump of trees that's that people have been stopping and picnicking by for years. The timber harvest plan goes right to the edge of this. This is a spot that I and others have thought would be a great place for a trail through this long grove, like Chamberlain Creek, but Cal Fire has no interest in that. There is also logging taking place on the Camp One Loop Trail, um, which is a little further east than what we're talking about. And I mean, the trailhead itself is a pile of brush now. It's demolished. Um, And when you try and walk along the trail, um, there's trees marked for cut. And it's, it's just absurd the amount of devastation taking place in an area that clearly not only has so much value in recreation, but is also cherished by the community and by others who come here for this space. Mm -hmm. And this is along the Sherwood Equestrian Trail as well, which Mm -hmm. is probably an old, old Pomo Trail, which means that they are probably damaging cultural artifacts and cultural sites. Sarah, can you tell us about the rally that you put on last weekend? Yeah, so, I mean, I didn't do the core organizing for this. It was, um, we had a rally on Saturday. It was Saturday. We had a rally on Saturday, um, and it was a nice little gathering. We had some speakers, and we had some um, tribal singers that were brought by Priscilla Hunter from the Coyote Valley Band of Pomo. And we had um, hot coffee and some snacks and we had a cake and dessert auction and raffle and we hung out by the good morning tree and basically had a little rally to just make the public more aware of what's going on in red tail and specifically with that tree Mm -hmm. do you feel good about how it went yeah it was a really nice little rally we had a pretty solid turnout it was not raining which was impressive because you were out in the rain a few days before. Yeah, it had been pouring quite for quite a while beforehand. Yeah, there are pictures of you in the youth rally on Wednesday, I think. Yeah, we also I also organized a youth rally on Wednesday, which had a smaller turnout because it was pouring down rain on us. But that didn't stop us. We were out there on the side of the road with our banner. Yeah, it stopped Chipmunk. Seven-year-old Chipmunk did not want to go in the rain. Yeah, there were. I mean, it did stop a few people, but we were still there. Nice. Uh, would Michelle, would you like to talk about this week's last two weeks of activism? Yeah. So protesters were inspired by the semi-grizzly message left by the timber operators. And we co-opted Good Morning and had a good morning, pun intended, um, week of action. It was really interesting to maintain a presence at the Camp One entrance, um, because it is so public. You know, it's not the Casper 500. It's not Soda Gulch, where you're kind of tucked away. 
and the only people there are people that are meaning to be there. There were a lot of passerby, both timber operators and community members, and the timber operator passerby were definitely the most interesting because a lot of them commented on how sloppy of a job it was. Those trees fall in there. Um, I'm like, great, we can all agree on something. But so from Wednesday the 8th until Saturday, there was a constant forest defense presence. um, And the timber operators did not get a single full day of work in. Um, And the timber operators themselves, you know, there's this increasing level of nastiness and this increasing confidence of how poorly they can treat the forest defenders which is really troubling to see. I mean, I think it's so easy to forget in a place like Mendocino and in a public forest when the birds are chirping and the mist is out and you're surrounded by these big, beautiful trees and then there's people, you know, hitting protesters with trucks or calling people names or running chainsaws really close to protesters. And the escalation of what they feel they can get away with is really threatening. Mm-hmm. Michelle, can you tell us about the incident that happened at the blockade where a truck ran into an activist? Yeah, so this was one of the scariest things that has happened um, so far between activists and timber workers. There was a group of four forest defenders who were attempting to maintain a blockade down um, at an intersection near the egg-taking station um, in Redtail, or just outside of Redtail. And there were four activists. They were spacing themselves out to adequately block the road. Um, They were all wearing bright yellow safety vests. I believe one had a bright pink hard hat on. Um, So very visible is the point here, and it was fully daylight. Um, And this little white truck came around the bend, clearly saw the protesters, did not slow down, um, ended up kind of slamming on the brakes and then reversing and gunning it at protesters again and then pulling back up. And just this, you know, obvious threatening behavior, obvious game of chicken. Um, One of the forest defenders was attempting to engage in conversation, you know, like, are you here to log? Are you here? Um, And the forest defender who was trying to talk to the people in the vehicle um, did identify them and recognize them from um, Soda Gold Timber Harvest Plan and was able to identify that they were people that we should be worried about. Um, and the truck backed up again and gunned it at the um, two protesters who were standing on the south end of the little road and did end up actually striking one of the protesters in the chest um, with the bar on the front of the truck. Luckily, the protester was okay. And there are, of course, three videos of this um, from different angles. And what's most striking, I think, is the forest defender goes, oh, my God, you hit me with your truck. And the driver, instead of saying no or you're wrong, says, no, you ran into me as if anyone in their right mind would see a truck charging them and also charge the truck. Yeah, luckily, everyone is okay. Um, No one's hurt, but definitely traumatic. I know all the people who are on the line are shaken up um, because we we have really high opinions of our neighbors. We don't think they're the kind of people that are going to hit you with a truck, even when you disagree about something. Mm -hmm. And the driver didn't jump out to see if 
if the activist was okay? No, uh, no, they immediately backed up, turned around, um, sped off. Um, I'm actually not even sure if they turned around, but it's in a video somewhere. So it's basically a hit and run assault. Yeah. Uh, and battery because there was that connection. Um, and it, yeah, it's just flagrant violence. And was this taken to the sheriff's? Yeah, so the, the forest defender um, did decide to file a report um, because that kind of behavior, you know, can't go unreported. Um, and the forest defender attempted to file a report with both the sheriff's department and with California Highway Patrol and was told by both um, offices that they were not able to handle complaints in Jackson Demonstration State Forest and that the forest defender would have to take that to Cal Fire, which obviously um, was uncomfortable for the forest defender um, because Cal Fire has been encouraging or enabling this kind of behavior out Mm -hmm. in the forest. Um, Also, you know, forest defenders have seen California Highway Patrol respond to calls made by licensed timber operators and made by Cal Fire. So there's this double standard going on Mm -hmm. um, that's really scary for the public. Well, thank you both so much for being with us today. I hope that we can talk to you again next month. Thanks, Chad. That was activists Michelle McMillan and Sarah Constance Rose. You are listening to the Trail Stewards Radio Hour on KZYX. on the line, Vince Taylor, economist, environmentalist, activist, and the founder of the original campaign to restore Jackson. Unfortunately, we spoke with Vince through a Zoom connection with kind of bad sound quality, so our apologies in advance. Vince Taylor, thanks for joining us. How are you doing? I'm doing fine, and thank you for inviting me to be on your program. You're welcome. Paul? One of the things we wanted to talk to you about is uh, what's going on with the Mendocino woodlands. But before we get into the the details, uh, for for our listeners that might not be familiar, can you give us some background on the Mendocino woodlands, what it is, where it is, and why we should care about what happened? Sure. Uh, Currently, the woodlands, what's termed the woodlands, is an area of 5,000 acres that was originally developed by the federal government in order to provide outdoor recreation living experiences for low-income people in the cities. This was part of FDR's New Deal program, the CCC that most people are familiar with that employed a lot of young people during the Depression, was put to work under the National Park Service to create these recreation areas in most states in the in the whole country. And California got one of them. A lot of states did. Some of them were 20,000 acres. This one is 5,000 acres. The whole in, idea and intent of uh, the federal government was once they all got constructed, they were most of them were built with the cooperation of the parks departments and the states. When they got done, they were to be turned back over to the states to be run by the park departments in perpetuity for this 
low-cost recreation experience for people in the cities. And of course, now there's a lot more people in the cities that could be benefiting from this. But lo and behold, in the case of the woodlands, and here in California, that 5,000 acres turned out to be adjacent to what is now Jackson State Forest. And through, I, I'm at a loss for words exactly to say exactly how this happened, but I do know in detail they went, the Department of Forestry, it was then the Division of Forestry in 1946, went to the, uh, or arranged a meeting with the head of the National Park Service in which it told them that, uh, unfortunately, the Department of Park Division of Parks and Beaches doesn't really want to have this land, and we would be happy to take it over if you could get around what seemed to be uh, an obstacle in the Act of Congress that authorized transfer of these recreational demonstration areas from the federal government to the states. And in this act of Congress, it said that this land will be used in perpetuity solely for recreational parks and conservation purposes. And if anyone who knows how the National Park Service was in the 1930s, and even today, they are to them, conservation means preservation. Very much unlike the Department of Forestry, in the federal government and in the state of California, which somehow thinks of conservation as being cutting down the trees in a way that you can keep cutting them down indefinitely. But this was clearly not the intent of Congress. And it was also very clear, they didn't say parks or recreation or conservation. They said parks, recreation and conservation, meaning mm -hmm. that all three needed to be satisfied at once. So. And anybody who knows what happens when you have timber harvest plans, it doesn't exactly conducive to increasing the recreation value of the land. So that was the situation. They did get the, uh, somebody in the uh, Department of the Interior to write a letter that said, oh yes, in our opinion, uh, if you do any one of the three purposes, that's sufficient to satisfy the act of Congress, which is of course absurd on the face of it because it didn't say or, it said and. And then he said, secondly, it's well understood that conservation is meant to include uh, timber harvest. And of course, in the National Park Service's definition, it is not. Tell you that as it may, the Department of the, of, of the Interior transferred the Woodlands Recreational Demonstration Area to the Department of Forestry, to the state, which turned it over to the Department of Forestry. And they folded it in to their newly acquired Jackson State Forest uh, that they had bought at basically at the same time from uh, the Casper Lumber Company. And this was in the uh, late 40s, right? That's right. I think the transfers occurred beginning in, for the Jackson Force in 47, and I think that was the same year that the, the Woodlands got transferred over. And then even though they, when they asked the Department of Interior uh, for permission to do this, they said they were gonna manage it for um, timber harvesting and recreation. But uh, those of us who have been around here realize 
their idea of recreation is if you want to come in and go in all our log areas and stuff, it's okay. So I, I want to elaborate a little bit on what the Woodlands is that if you haven't been there, it is one of the most amazing places. And it was part of this vision, as Vince was saying, of creating a low-cost recreation outdoor experience. And it is just a collection of amazing, rustic, but very attractive buildings, camping cabins and halls that were built by you know WPA labor. And they've been in operation pretty much continuously since 1949 until the pandemic with camps, people coming up from the city to do dance, to do church activities, to do nature activities. This just unusual and unique place. And in the 70s, that the, the California Department of Forestry was kind of done with it. They didn't want to deal with it anymore. And Vince, could you talk about what happened in uh, leading up to 1976? Right. I, I don't know the exact story of how the legislature in California got involved, but at some point, the California Department of Forestry said to the people who are running the uh, outdoor facility, camping facilities, that there was just too much deferred maintenance that they just couldn't afford to fix up the, the buildings and maintain it. So they were just going to close it down and then log in the area. And supporters of the Woodlands obviously got some legislators to intervene. They withdrew the timber harvest plans that were going on or planned at that time. They set up something called a special treatment area it was about 2,000 acres out of the 5,000 acres that surrounded the woodlands. Little Rake Road is Jackson State Forest that was part of the recreational demonstration area. One of the first things they did, they came in and basically cut all the timber out of that before anybody was ever paying any attention. And the people who were trying to keep the Woodlands Outdoor Center had their hands full just keeping that uh, operating. So. They got away with doing that without anybody paying attention. So it's a, it's really a, it's a tragic situation, but it's done and gone. So there's no going back to restore those forests. But I do also want to just emphasize for people that it was the intent specifically of those people that put these areas together that there they would be no timber harvesting of any kind Rather, they were going to what they called afforestation, or we would call reforestation. But even like where there are orchards and things, they were going to plant trees because they wanted to make it entirely a redwood forest experience, no, never to be interfered with. And of course, we've lost all that to this point. And uh, now they have one huge, well, huge 200-acre timber harvest right in the middle of the special treatment area, really close to uh, where the outdoor center is. And now, since they've basically exhausted, they've gone around the forest and cut down all the old trees, second growth trees that exist, they now have three timber harvest plants all encroaching into that special treatment area. Um, and, uh, and it will greatly degrade the experience for people that are there. And I think some of us, try, we all try to walk up. So just to elaborate on that, that there's 
There are three proposed timber harvest plans in the special treatment area. Railroad Gulch, which is not has not been submitted, but unfortunately they are planning to submit it soon, and this is one of the most biodiverse places really in the West. It's been studied. Um, part of it is constitutes a place called Mushroom Corners, where over 745 species of ectomycorrhizal fun- fungi have been identified and many hundreds of other species of plants and animals. There is also a timber harvest plan being developed called Eastberry Gulch, which is not in the special treatment area, but it's right above the woodlands. Um, one, we we encourage you to go to the Trail Stewards website and look at the timber harvest plan section that um, little north fork of the Big River, LNF Big River, and that is right up to the boundaries of Camp 2, which is where many music camps have taken place. And within the management plan, the Jackson State Management Plan, they say that there's supposed to be a buffer zone between the um, timber harvest plans and any, any of the state park property. And unfortunately, if you go on one of the trails called um, Eagle's Roost, you can literally see trees striped for cut. And on the other side of the tree is a sign that says state park property. So there's no there's not even one foot of buffer zone. You've made a proposal that you have written into an article called The Theft of the Woodlands, and uh, you would like to see things managed differently in the future. Can you detail your proposal for us? Well, right. I mean, I, I think when you, you look at this woodlands history and its, its, its implementation, what it represents, what's been preserved, this is really an iconic development of FDR's New Deal. And there isn't all that much of FDR's New Deal that remains, but here is a camp in existence and the 5,000 acres is still public land just because people back in the 40s went around the intent of Congress and did something to try to further the interests of the timber business in California is no reason that the current managers of the, of Jackson Forest shouldn't recognize that that their predecessors did something wrong and correct it. And the state itself, I would like to see legislation passed because I don't trust the Department of Forestry will ever voluntarily give up any timberland to pass a, a bill that would do two things. First of all, it would transfer the entire recreational demonstration area of 5,000 acres over to state parks. And it would have the Department of Forestry reimburse or repatriate to the Department of Parks all the revenue for timber harvest operations that took place primarily in the 1960s with the revenues with compounded interest to the present (laughs) to go back to the parks so that they could try to use that money to restore some of the damage that has been done. So I think that would be a way, just as we're, we are trying in our legislature, I mean, in our government and all to make some amends to the Indians that we just totally trounced. There's a trounce annihilated basically. There is also that same kind of spirit should exist to right the wrongs of people that 
in the government that did things wrong in the past in our own state. So they could make up for that by passing this kind of legislation. You have done some calculations, and this is separate of the Woodlands, but it applies to all of Jackson State, about carbon value. And before we get there, I want to kind of clarify for people because people ask me a lot, what does carbon sequestration mean? What is carbon cap and trade? And what is um, carbon capture and storage? And carbon sequestration is just a really simple concept that carbon dioxide is in the atmosphere and trees and plants take it and sequester it in, in plant material. And they're the only thing that does that. And obviously we have a problem with CO2 in the atmosphere that there's too much CO2 and it's heating up the the climate, but there is this concept of carbon capture and storage, which people are trying to create all these high tech, high energy use inventions that none of which has, have been proven, none of which work. And we can't reach net zero, which is also kind of a greenwash idea. We really can't do anything that forests can't do. And we, the trail stewards, we're not advocating this carbon cap and trade scheme, but we, you've talked about quantifying the value of carbon for some really interesting reasons. And I, when you, when you elaborated to us earlier, earlier, it really blew my mind. Can you get into this, Vince? Yeah, I wanted to say something about this kind of carbon capture, which is a huge industrial operation. And it's, it's, for me, it's one of the discouraging things about our, our climate program in California is that the only real climate uh, legislation that got passed this year, and it got passed pretty much unanimously by voters of the republic, I mean, the legislators that are Republican and Democrat, which was to, to give a go-ahead for this idea that you're going to build these huge industrial plants, you're going to have to have put a lot of energy into these plants to pull the carbon dioxide, separate it out of the air, compress it down into a liquid, and then transport it through pipelines over to the oil fields and stuff in the Central Valley and pump it down into the oil fields. Now, this is like going, I mean, it's just such a backwards idea. It's, it's like trying to make everything more and more complicated, more industrial and everything. Just the same thing. I was around in the 1970s with, with nuclear energy, and I read some of the stuff about this carbon capture program. It's being promoted by Edison Electric Institute, which was the same major lead promoter of nuclear power in the 70s. It's all the big industrial people that are pushing this, and it's just so wrongheaded. And it won't really, it's not going to turn out. They, they're not talking about working till 2050 by the time they get it out. About a third of, of Jackson State Forest is Douglas fir in terms of the quantity of wood there. Well, there is no market for Doug fir anymore in Mendocino County because all of the mills that used to mill it and turn it into lumber have closed. So you have to drive it a long way. It doesn't really cover the cost of transport and everything even if they gave it away free. 
which basically they're doing. They're giving away for $40 a thousand, four cents a board foot. And for the sake of reference, you can look at like the Casper 500 timber sale. Redwood was selling for $575 for a thousand board feet and dug for Hemlock and Grand for $40 for a thousand board feet. You take the total expense of running the forest and you divide it by the number of board feet they harvest every year, it comes out to about $300 per thousand, per thousand. And so they're getting $40 and the expenses are $300. So they're losing for the taxpayers $260 per hundred thousand. Well, they could just leave it standing, but for their own reasons, they want to cut this down, which doesn't make any sense when we're in a car a climate crisis where we're trying to avoid carbon emissions, we're trying to reduce carbon emissions, which they could do very easily just by not selling the Douglas fir. Once they sell it, then once those trees get cut, almost all the carbon in those trees goes into the atmosphere, polluting the atmosphere with CO2. At the same time, they're creating a huge loss for the taxpayers, but that's not the end of it because the carbon in the air like that has a, a negative value. 38 million tons a year of CO2 goes into the air from the Douglas fir that's being harvested after you allow for the fact that some part of it goes into wood products, but the part that all just goes into the air. That's 38 million. Well, it, it, if the present price is $30, why can this, why do the major polluters have to pay $30 a ton? Shouldn't the state, if they're polluting with their carbon dioxide into the air, be assessed in our, in our calculations the same charge as the polluters are? So for that 38 million tons, it amounts to about $2.5 million worth of pollution that the state is, is putting into the air. I think it must be illegal for the state to be using it in a way that, that imposes costs on the taxpayers rather than benefits. Well, we are out of time, and it's been a great show. You've been listening to the Trail Stewards Radio Hour. This is Chad Swimmer with my friend Paul Schulman, and we hope you can listen in again next month, the third Tuesday at 7 p.m. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening. Me straight for the dawn.